The sermon text this morning is Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I'm sure most of you have heard the name Jeff Bezos, the founder and former CEO of Amazon. Um, he, of course, retired from that position, and it was reported in The Guardian, a British newspaper back in September, that he is uh, becoming heavily invested in a place called Altos Labs, which is a scientific research firm uh, to seek immortality, to seek an end to death. Um, we, well, we, we struggle with the idea of death. I mean... Uh, a Pulitzer Prize-winning book back in the early 70s by Ernest uh, Becker was called The Denial of Death. And in this book, uh, the premise of the book was simply that we all fear death. All people do, young, old, alike. We, we fear the idea of dying. And the book spoke about our capacity to deny the reality of this, of this truth. And whether it's alcohol, work, success, sex religion, uh, we will engage in all kinds of various uh, ways to somehow avoid thinking and dealing with this reality. And it's not just our day, of course. Uh, John Calvin, the great reformer in the 16th century, struggled with the very same thing. He spoke to his church in this way. He says, we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life, but the moment we turn away from the sight, the thought of our own perpetuity remains fixed in our minds. It's difficult to deal with the reality of death. You know, Luke Ferry is a French philosopher. We read his book on philosophy a couple of years back as a staff, and he was the one that spoke to that the whole origin of philosophy and philosophical thought, Socrates, all the ones that followed, was trying to deal with how do we find meaning in this life when we know it ends. How can we live as we walk to the cliff, making meaning out of life when it seems as if there is nothing beyond? How do you deal with death? Does it cause you to be hopeless, despairing, anxious? Are you ambivalent to it? Do you just deny it? When Carol and I were in ministry in Michigan, we had a, a woman who lived across the street from the parsonage, and she was a member of the church, um, didn't come often, wasn't sure of her faith. I went to visit her, spoke to her about the faith, and she was not super interested in the conversation. Uh, she was an older lady, uh, pressing towards 80, and so I just asked her about the reality of death and how does she contemplate that idea and what's going to follow. And she goes, oh, I, ne I never think about it. I never think about it at all. I said, well, you know, th that's not really going to change the reality uh, that it's still coming to you and you need to give thought to it. And she goes, oh, I, I, won't, I won't even go there. Some of us don't even want to think about it. 
Well, the book that Ernest Becker wrote, of course, didn't have a solution to it, but I'm thankful that Jesus Christ did. And particularly this text answers the, the problem of death. How do we deal with death? In fact, this is what I love about Advent. You know, when we look at Advent, what we think of this divine word, Jesus, becoming flesh, the union of divinity and humanity. It's a profound thought. This is why C.S. Lewis called it the grand miracle. It's the, it's the miracle of miracles. Jesus coming among us. Well, in our text, as you heard, uh, you heard Ginny read that he has come to defeat death through his death. In other words, he comes like a, he comes like a deliverer, and he comes to rescue us who are bound under the chains of death and bondage and fear to it, and he comes to set us free. Now, you know, in preaching class, they always tell you, you know, you've got to be practical. You've got to have a lot of good application to your sermon. Well, since all of us are going to die, I, I think by virtue of that, this should be an applicable sermon. Now, if you fade out on me, I don't know what that means, other than maybe you're partially dead already, but this is really important information. I mean, everybody here, we're all in the same camp. How do we face this death that every one of us will ultimately walk before? Well, he tells us. So I, I want to do a real simple sermon, just two points. Uh, first, I want to speak about the reality of the incarnation, the reality of it. Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews doesn't make a strong apologetic about it. He just kind of states it. The reality of it and then the purpose of it. So the reality of it. You see it in verse 14, just the first half of that verse. Read it again with me, please. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things. That's a beautiful way of describing the incarnation. We have flesh and blood. So he shares in it as well. It doesn't say he was given a body. It doesn't say he became a man. No, it just shares. He shares this flesh and blood. These are the, really the elementary principles of our life. I mean, when you boil us down, it's flesh and it's blood. And he shares these with us. Now, in Scripture, the flesh and blood actually speak to our weakness, our frailty, our limitations. Our brokenness it, it speaks to our fatigue our hunger and it speaks to our mortality and so when it says he shared in our flesh and blood it wasn't just saying he became like us or appears to be like us no he actually is us he, he is the same and John in his gospel said it in kind of raw terms he just says the word became flesh and dwelt among us you see it in 17 he says he became like us in every respect. So every human experience that you and I walk through, he has walked through. So he has become fully, fully human. Now that's, that's awful significant. But it's even more significant when, if you were to read the first two chapters or the first chapter and a half of Hebrews, you'd also find out about this Jesus, uh, that he was the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, he is sitting at the right hand of God. He is far superior to the angels. You would see a massive outlay of the deity, the divinity of Jesus Christ. Fully divine, and yet he is human without sin. Now, this is a profound mystery. Human analogies can't explain it. Let me try to put it simply, though. It's, it's Jesus has clothed his deity with humanity. In other words, Jesus existed before as the eternal word. You see that? Even the verb tense of partook. 
the verb tense is such that it, it was an event. He wasn't a man before, now he is a man. So, so we see the incarnation as an addition to his nature, not a subtraction. There is nothing less about him, but there's an addition, this human nature. One of the church fathers said it this way, he became what he was not without ceasing to be who he was so that he could make us to be what we are not, to be like him. So he's come among us. He's come to form a solidarity with us. You see that when he says the children. Who are these children? A lot of people think these, you see it right there in verse 14, the children share, he shares in the children's flesh and blood. A lot of people think this is just humanity. But, but the children actually are defined in the verse before. These are the children that have been given to Jesus. A quote from Isaiah 8. These these children are unique children. They they belong to Jesus. They're not children based upon their humanity, but upon the electing mercy of God. In other words, you see here the particular gracious care of God to give these children to Jesus to save. And, And these are the ones with whom he comes. Jesus himself said the same thing, both in John 6, I'll read John 17. He says, I have manifested your name. This is Jesus in his high priestly prayer. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. So Jesus has come to specifically save and to save. the. Are you a child of God? I mean, have you, have you come to the place of recognizing that you were once an enemy, and that through faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone, that you enter the family of God. These children who have been given to Jesus, we are not in that group just because we have been children. It's through faith. You know, as I said, the writer of Hebrews here wasn't arguing. He wasn't he wasn't making a strong apologetic. He was declaring this reality of the incarnation. He, he did it because these people that the letter was written to were struggling to persevere in the faith because of the attacks and the trials they were facing. He was encouraging them with hope that Christ has come among us and he has come to surely save us. He will endure you. And many things you can draw out of the reality of the resurrection. First, you can draw out that he does, in fact, love us. He was the exact, he is the exact representation of God, and yet he becomes like us. And he chose to do this. He wasn't forced. And he's going to do this forever. That's why Jesus Christ was raised with a body. They saw his wounds. He ascended. You know, he went through the heavens with a body, and the angel said he's going to come back in the same way. Jesus will be forever the God-man. Now listen, the royalty of our world, the nations that still have monarchies, the royalty don't live among the commoners. They don't. I mean, they don't. They have palaces and they have walls and they have moats. They have fortresses. They don't live among the people. But he has come among the people. You see a massive humility and a care. It's, It's to indicate to us that he loves us. You know, Paul prays that we would comprehend the height, the depth, and the length 
of Christ's love and the breath of Christ's love for us, this would be an indication of that love. I came to you. You know, none of the other pagan religions have gods coming down and dwelling among a people for a people. The idea is always to leave the body, this cage or this this kind of chamber of pain, to leave it and go to the gods. But he comes down to us. It's a significant mark of his love for us. But also you see that he pursues us. If you are a child, he has pursued you. I mean, notice in 16 where it says, the angels he doesn't help. It's, it's the offspring of Abraham. When the angels fell, nobody went after him. There was no plan put in place. Go save the angels. The angels weren't saved. Nobody went after him. But it's the offspring of Abraham. Now, we've been going through Galatians. We took a short break for this Advent series. But you know who the offspring of Abraham if you believe in the promise of God as Abraham did, you're the offspring of it. You don't have to be a lineage. You don't have to have some you know, lineage to some Jewish person. The children of Abraham are the offspring of Abraham. Those are the ones who believe in the promise of God given to Abraham, that I will send a Messiah, I will bless the nations, and I will save a people for myself. And I will give you a land, this cosmos, ultimately, the new heavens and the new earth. If you believe that like Abraham, you're an offspring of Abraham. It's the same group as the children in verse 14. And it says he's come to help us. Helping us is not like pushing us over the line. The, the verb for help it has this idea of pursuit. He's pursued us. You know, he pursued Paul. He changed his life. He pursued Peter after he sinned. He pursued me. Do you know how he pursued you? You know, if you're a Christian, when you look back at your life, can you marvel over what God did to kind of wake your soul up to him? I mean, if you think that you just woke up one day, and discovered, I need religion. And it's, it's kind of resting on your tra- Then what you got is religion. But if he's pursued you, then you've been born again. There's a faith. There's a new life in you. Creating affections and desires for holiness. So he pursues us. He, he loves us. He pursues us. But he also understands us. The fact that he took flesh and blood indicates that he has walked as we walk. You can't say... He doesn't know how I feel. No, he has entered the predicament of life, the dilemma that we face, you know, the job frustrations, the personal and the interpersonal conflict, the sexual temptations, the struggle with envy and bitterness. He's faced all those things. You see that in verse 18. He's been tempted in all those ways. You know, when I was a kid growing up, uh, the expression used to be, hey, you can't judge him until you walk a mile in his shoes. Well, he's walked a mile in our shoes. He understands. Now, you know, when we're suffering, you know, pain does cause this sort of separation from people. It causes isolation. When you're feeling pain or you're suffering for something, you, you, you tend to feel alone. And you, you begin to tell somebody, and then they give you their response or what you ought to do or how you ought to fix your life. And a lot of times you're like, I just want you to hear what I'm going through right now. I, I don't simply want sympathy, that kind of compassion with. I want empathy. I want you to enter my pain with me. And then you feel heard. You feel understood. You feel like the other person gets it and you feel close to them. You, you're sharing something now. Well, this is what Jesus does. He enters our world. He enters our pain. The, the, he understands. Maybe you're in a massive relational conflict right now. Or maybe you're facing some great temptation. He, he has faced that. And that's why he came. 
Jesus as God knew what we went through. Jesus as God had not experienced what we go through. And now he has. And so he is, you can appeal to him differently with the higher confidence. So this is the nature of the incarnation. He loves us. He's come to rescue us and he's come to understand that he can walk with us, that he can be both a savior and a brother and a friend to us. Uh, But becoming a, a, a kind of the God-man, though miraculous, doesn't do anything yet. We see the purpose of his incarnation in the second half of 14 and 15. So you see the reality of the incarnation, if you were taking notes, and then there's the purpose of the incarnation. There's two points there, two ideas. You see that first he has come to defeat our greatest enemy. Look with me at the second half of 14. He says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That's the devil. So, so the writer of Hebrews seems to think he identifies the devil specifically as having the power of death. If you're a Christian here, you're thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, I thought God had the power of death. You read Job, God gives life, he takes life. Nobody has the power of life and death but God. But I think what the writer's doing here, he's speaking about the power of death in the sense that the devil was the first sinner. He committed sin against God. And he led our first parents into sin. And that sin led to death. And and so the association is that, you know, Satan is seeking for God not to be glorified, for a people to turn uh, against him. And so the, the temptation to sin and then sin leads to death. You know, Paul says the wages of sin is death. So I think that's the sense that he means of having a power. Uh, William Lane was a New Testament theologian, died probably 20 plus years ago, said it this way, he says, the devil did not possess control over death, but gained power when he seduced humankind to rebel against God. So that's how he's associated. But the question is, how does Jesus destroy this one who has the power of death? Because we still die. And he seems to be alive and active in the world. So what does it mean that he destroyed the one? Well, remember now, that Greek word to destroy doesn't mean to annihilate or obliterate. It means to render ineffective or inoperable. And so it says that Jesus has rendered Satan inoperable in terms of having power to hold over our heads death associated with our sin. And he's done this through his death. You see this. Jesus had to become mortal so that he could die, and his death is for our sins. Therefore, we will never suffer death or separation from God. You see this clearly in verse 17. Look at 17 with me. He says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's speaking to the incarnation. What purpose? Well, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And this is really, this is heavy stuff here. So in the Old Testament, you had priests. And these priests would die just like we die. And they would offer sacrifices that would have to be repeated every year. Because the priests weren't perfect in the sacrifices. Maybe by observation they looked perfect, but they were part of a fallen world. They weren't perfect either. But they were a picture of what was to come. And so Jesus now, following and fulfilling this picture, he is the faithful and merciful priest. He won't die. He's God. And he comes with a sacrifice that is perfect. That is himself. That's why John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus presents himself as a sacrifice to God for our sins that will never die. 
That's what propitiation means. Propitiation is a, it's a big word, no doubt. It's a theological word. It's a heavy word. But it simply means this, that he absorbs the wrath of God and his righteous anger over our sin. God absorbs it like a sponge. He just takes it all in. So there's no more anger that God has towards our sin. He satisfies God and his justice over the nature of our sin. This is what renders Satan inoperable or ineffective. Satan can no longer hold these things over our head. The guilt that we have that causes us to fear this final day, what's God really going to say to us? He's died for all those. All those things, that's why we sang, shake off your guilty fears. This bleeding sacrifice, he appears on our behalf. Before the throne, our surety stands. He stands and says, I, I took all the wrath. I absorbed all the righteous anger. There, there is no anger remaining for his children because his son has taken it. Th this is incredible. This is how he renders Satan inoperable. He doesn't crush him like an ant. He actually suffers for our sins to so that we are innocent and that we can stand before God. And death has been defeated. It doesn't mean we're not going to die a physical death, but we'll never die that eternal death, that separation from God. You know, Romans 8, 33, Paul says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. If God the Father, the ruler of all things, if he justifies, that means if he declares innocent through faith in Christ, who's, who's going to stand up and accuse you? Nobody can. And that's why Paul ends that chapter saying, for I'm convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all creation, neither height nor depth will be able to separate you from the love of God. It's all rooted because the Son has come to bear what we should be guilty of, but now he has paid for us. So you see, the, the first purpose is simply that he has come to destroy the one who has the power of death. And he destroyed it in such a paradoxical fashion. He destroys it by being put to death for our sins. Uh, this, friends, should stoke affections in our soul. If you, if you see him as the one who has borne all of your shame, your guilt, your sin, even the things you don't remember that you've done, and he's borne it all so that you don't have to bear it and face God with it, we're thankful for him. This is what it means to be a Christian, to rest in that work. Being a Christian isn't coming to church. It's not holding to the, you know, the, you know, cognitively just holding to the Nicene Creed. It's resting the hope of your soul in him and him alone. That's what it means. Now, if you do that, your heart's going to be changed. You're going to have affections. It may be slow. It may be bumpy. It may have some fits and starts, but you will be changed. But there's another reason he came. And you see this when it says in verse 15. Look at it with me. In verse 15, he says, And deliver, he came to deliver those. He came. This is why he took on flesh. This is why we have celebration at Christmas. And to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, can we admit that, that when we do think about death, we may get a little skittish? That there is a sense of denial. I don't want to think about it. You know, I don't know, for you, it might be the pain of death. It might be what looks like eternal destruction. Maybe you fear non-existence. Maybe you fear non-being. 
you know, that, you, that you're obliterate. I don't know what you fear. Most of us tend to fear it, and we see the evidence in our busyness in life, our pursuit of physical pleasures or successes. You know, Al Mohler says that we live our lives like traveling on business through the airport. You know, we're rushing here and there. We're trying to get this. We're getting in this line. You know, when you're traveling through the airport in business, you don't have a lot of time to contemplate and to think and to rest and to meditate on these things. You have an objective. You have a purpose. You have schedules. That's the way many of us live our lives. We don't think about it. And here I am talking to you about it. And the reason is, is because death always intrudes. It, it always creeps in. I mean, you, you can be having a great run at life, and then boom, death comes to a loved one, a friend. Something happens, and all of a sudden it spins you on your heels. And, and then you begin thinking about death. And then those thoughts come into your mind. I haven't lived by God's standards. I haven't even lived by my own standards. What's going to happen to me? But then it says, you look at this text, he's delivering you through fear. In other words, do you see what Jesus' death has done? His propitiation has rendered death irrelevant. Irrelevant. He, he's changed death into a servant of God. Uh, death is a door that we now pass through. In, implied in this text, you don't see the word resurrection or, or Jesus was raised, but you see it behind. Why? Because if he had stayed in the grave, we'd still have the fears. We wouldn't know for sure. But here, Christ being raised from the dead is evidencing now that he has conquered death. He's defeated it. So Satan can't hold over your head. He can't hold over your head this idea. What about this? What about this? What about this? You say, well, Christ paid for that. Well, he paid for that also. And yep, he paid for that one. And yep, he paid for that one as well. And so it just keeps drawing our heart back to Christ. So, so you see in this short little passage, God's done an amazing thing for us in sending the Son. He's sending the Son to us, like us, that we can see God's love, his pursuit. We can see his care for us. God is compassionate. And yet we see the purpose of it. It's to deliver us from not just the fear of death, but he does it by crushing the one who holds the power of death. So what do we do with this? Let me just try to give you a couple takeaways you know, in terms of how we fight the fear of death that we all face, or even the threat of it, or maybe you know, however you look at it. Let me give you some ideas about how to consider it. Uh, first, I would speak to the Christian here. You do have to prepare for death. Even Christians among us, we're so busy, we give little thought to it. We see Jesus as an insurance policy, but we don't think really about what it is, this, this cessation of life. Let me remind you that you're like the grass. You're here today and you'll be gone tomorrow. Now this is easier for those of us who are a little bit older. You've passed through a few seasons of life. This is probably harder, a little bit while you're younger, but you need to work more diligently to understand. You are like the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. You're like the lily that blooms beautifully, but then ends quickly. You're like the mist. It comes in the morning, but by the sun coming up, warming the earth, it disappears. This isn't to frighten us. It's not to go morose. It's to gain wisdom, right? That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes wants us to understand. Listen to what he says to us in chapter 7. He says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. We wouldn't agree with that initially. We need more. He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. We would disagree with that. 
But he tells us the reason why. He says, for this is the end of all mankind, everyone in this room, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, if we lay to heart the brevity of our life, we're going to be wiser. We're going to live differently. We're going to prepare. That day that dawns upon us on that last hour won't be of dread for us because you've lived in light of it. The psalmist says the same thing in 90. Teach me to number my days that I may gain of heart of wisdom. How often do you consider your death? There's one blog post, a death rehearsal. How often do you consider that? Just give thought to what will that day be like. Am I ready for that day? There is much wisdom. He says the day of death is better than the day of birth. Why? Because in considering, we, we love cribs, we love maternity wards, but he's saying it's better to go to a funeral home because it causes us to think upon that which we're not naturally drawn. Not, again, if we know he has defeated death, we're not looking at it with fear, but it, it, it moves in us a wisdom. You know, sin is by nature stupid. When I sin, I do stupid things. But when I consider the day, it helps me to walk in greater and joyful obedience to God. It, the decisions I make in light of my death are wiser than the decisions I make when I just consider the next week. When I consider further out, my decisions tend to be wiser. Uh, so for the Christian here, I want you to, to prepare, to consider this. Uh, but if you're here and you're not a Christian, I still think it's wise to consider your death. I still think it's wise to consider that you're aging and you're moving day after day to an end. And what will the end be for you? I appreciate it. Uh, Woody Allen, many of you know the name. He's been in many movies, written the scripts, very funny, funny person, secularist, through and through, no doubt. Um, but he said these words in an interview in, with Esquire magazine a number of years ago. He says, I always see death's head lurking. I could be sitting at Madison Square Garden. He was a, he's a big Knicks fan. At the most exciting basketball game, and they're cheering, and everything is thrilling, and one of the players is doing something very beautiful. And my thought will be, he's only 28 years old. I only wish you could savor this moment in some way. Because, you know, this is as good as it's going to get for him. The fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror. And it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. I mean, if, if true, nothing follows life then nothing matters now. What do you do with that? You have to make peace with it. I encourage you to think through what that means because what the Christian faith teaches is not just to prepare for death, but to consider the cross. And I would, I would encourage both the non-Christian, but also the Christian to walk well up to death. We have to consider the cross. We have to mentally engage. We're not good at this anymore. We'll cast a thought towards the cross of Christ. We'll think about it periodically. When I'm talking about meditating and contemplating, I'm asking you to do something that we have not done well for years. And that is to sit in a distracting, in a somewhat distractionless situation and consider he who knew no sin became sin that I might become the righteousness of God. Or to consider a text like in Revelation 1.17. I would read this uh, for my brother when he was dying of cancer. 
you know, when John falls down at the feet of Jesus, Jesus is, is appearing to John in the Revelation. He's in glory, hair white as wool, face shining in the strength of the sun, voice like the sound of rushing waters. And he says, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, to hold the keys, it's a metaphor. He owns the place. He now, the, the power of the one who had the, the one who had the power of death, Christ says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. Nobody's dying. Nobody's going. He holds it all. He's the sovereign one. As you contemplate what Christ has accomplished for us, it begins to wash the guilt and the fear away. And it brings a joy and a satisfaction that prepares us for this next existence that God has in the new heavens and the new earth. Spurgeon encouraged his church this way. He says, oh, child of God, death has lost its sting because the devil's power over it's destroyed. He says, cease to fear dying. Ask for grace from God, the Holy Ghost, that by an intimate knowledge and firm belief in thy Redeemer's death, an intimate knowledge of his death, think through what he did and who he was, that you may be strengthened for that dread hour. Living near the cross of Calvary, you may think on death with pleasure and welcome it when it comes with intense delight. And I'll show you an example of that in just a minute. Death is no longer banishment. It's a return from exile. It's a going home. We're not far from home. A moment will bring us there. He says the sail is spread. The soul is launched upon the deep. We have to contemplate the cross. But I'd also ask you to consider the gain of being with God. Just for a moment with me, consider what it means to be redeemed and to be with God forever. Not just in some celestial, hazy existence. No, the new heavens and the new earth. There is life after, life after death. Life after death until Christ returns is with God in heaven. But there is a life after, life after death. And that is in the new heavens and new earth. It's the cosmos. It's the renewed earth that is ours the promise given to Abraham will be ours. The land, perfect it. Consider that with me. I, I, I mean, there'll be no more pain. There'll be rest for your souls, renewed spirit, being with God, seeing the face of your Savior. You know, a lot of people look at heaven as something just kind of the, in the physical world just amped up on steroids. I appreciate it. Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, she's a writer, Christian writer and author and speaker. Uh, quadriplegic from when she was, I think, 18, uh, they asked her, you know, what do you look most for when you see God? Now, what would our assumption be? Well, to get out of the, get out of the wheelchair and start walking again. And she said, uh, I won't sin anymore. And I thought, you know how we feel when we sin as a Christian particularly? You, you do something stupid, you say something stupid, you can't get it back. And you just think, why did I do that again? I can't, can't believe I did that again. I mean, how many times do I have to learn this? And the, the guilt comes on and the, the sense of just being mad. To not sin, can you imagine the freedom and the joy of that? Not to be tempted and to constantly fall. To contemplate the glory that will be ours. That's what we're called to be doing. To be thinking about it, meditating on it. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I preached a biographical sermon on him probably four or five years ago. He was a preacher in London at the Westminster Chapel. 
And uh, when he was dying, he uh, lost his voice towards the end, the last week or so of his life. And he would point to scriptures, and one in particular he pointed to for his daughter to read, and it was 2 Corinthians 4. And it says, So we do not lose heart. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this might, for this light and momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. And so she read that, and, and she said to him, Is this your experience? Now, he's about to die. Is this your experience right now? And he nods his head vigorously. Yeah, yeah, this is mine. And then about a day passes, and, and he, asks, he points to a scrap of paper, and he writes down. This is what I'm talking about. When we, when we consider the glories that will be ours, the gain of heaven, he writes down on a scrap of paper. He says, Do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from glory. Uh, that, that's somebody that wants the gain. Like Paul, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is, is gain. He said, he said, it's far better. Could we not think that as we approach this hour of dread? Wouldn't that be incredible? Finally, all glory is revealed to us. Can you imagine? You don't have the mind. He says, no mind is, no eye has seen, no mind has conceived the glory that awaits those who love him. So we want to consider the game. But I would also ask you, in relationship to this, uh, fourth is to take risks with your life. Take risks. I mean, you could love recklessly. You can forgive continually. You can risk your life speaking to the gospel boldly. If you know you will never be separated from God, if you know you have no fear of any judgment from God, but acceptance as his child, we can, we can take risks in this life. You can bring forgiveness to people who have wounded you over and over. You can move sacrificially to those that don't come back and return the favor to you. You can endure justices knowing that he's going to make them up. You don't have to do tit for tat. Our marriages, our relationships, they could be radically different. If we began to look and say, you know what? I'm never going to die. I will be forever with God. We can give generously. If you have a heart for missions, you can go boldly. If you have a neighbor that you've never spoken the gospel to, you can speak to them about it. I mean, it gives a sense of boldness. Many of you know the name Ulrich Zwingli. He was one of the reformers. He pastored in, um, in Geneva, in Switzerland. And um, Calvin's in Geneva. He was in Switzerland. And he, uh, in 1519, the Black Death came. And he was out of the city. And, uh, but he knew many of the saints that he pastored were in, and so he returns. This is the bubonic plague. This is a third of Europe. As many as a third of Europe were wiped out by this. And so he went back in. He risked because he knew that his life was in the hands of the one who has the keys of death in Hades. And he, go, he went back in, he wrote this poem, I shared this with the first service and forgot to bring the poem up so you get to hear it. You can tell them ha-ha when you see them. But he says, In faith and hope, earth I resign, secure of heaven, for I am thine. And then as he continued to minister, he began to get sick, and he got sicker. And he wrote a poem. He harms me not, I fear no loss, for here I lie. Beneath thy cross, considering the cross of God makes us take bold risks. I'm asking you to do that. But, but last, 
I would also say engage in the church. As we face that day, to face it with boldness and joy, we need each other. We're not going to, we're pilgrims on a journey. That's, that's, the, that's the picture of Peter. We're aliens, we're moving forward to that final day. But we need each other in there. I spoke to these new members. They need your engagement, and they need your, and you need their engagement. You know, that great text in Hebrews where it says that we ought to spur on one another towards love and good deeds. We shouldn't forsake gathering together. We ought to be encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, the day, of course, references probably the day of Christ's return, but we may and most likely will return to him before he returns to us. So how do we encourage one another? How do we, how do we allow our lives to maybe expand a little, open our souls up a little, be a little more transparent with people, that they can help us walk in faithfulness towards the day? You won't do it alone, I assure you. You need others. So when you think about this text and you consider Christmas, Jesus has come in the flesh like us to be with us, a solidarity with the children so as to destroy the one who holds the power of death and to remove from us the fear that we can live these radical lives. So let's just take a moment and ask God to give us grace, maybe to understand this in deeper measure, that it would have a, a practical import in our life. Or ask him for help to understand these realities. Or ask him to help you believe if you're struggling with faith. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.